to Unspun episode number 210 with Steve Jones and Kieran Wortham. And uh, this is season 14, episode 6. And uh, happy to be back. We're going to be discussing the Trinity in the name of Jesus, the Trinity and its ties to the trivium, um, all kinds of good stuff. Steve has a quite a plethora of knowledge on the trivium. And uh, there are many out there who think that the trivium is a heresy, or excuse me, the Trinity is a heresy, or that it's a Gnostic insertion into Christianity and whatnot. And we're going to be exposing how these beliefs are false and also hopefully give people a deeper understanding into Christianity as well as into the false beliefs that the Muslims put forth regarding the Trinity and partners and uh, things like that. And Infinity in the chat already says it may just be a duality. So we discussed that right at the end of our uh, last show, uh, Kieran and Steve. Right when we went, right after we went off the air, we had about a five-minute discussion on this, mm-hmm. and that's right there is one of the topics that you just happened to address in that short little conversation after we went off air. So, where a lot of churches, um, Catholic, Lutheran, Orthodox. Um, not some other churches too, Baptist sometimes, um, will celebrate a Sunday called Trinity Sunday. And usually the pastor or priest gets up and there's an obligatory thing that he starts the sermon that you almost hear every Trinity Sunday. And at least this is what I've heard. And the priest usually says something, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to thine sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And then he goes on and he says, of course, anybody who tries to figure out the, her- the, the Trinity or explain the Trinity is probably a heretic. And then they go on to try to explain the Trinity. <laughs> so the, the, the pat simple answer usually is St. Patrick going to the Irish and picking up a three, you know, a three-leafed clover and say, here's three and one and one and three. And that's usually the explanation that is sufficient, and it is sufficient for a lot of people. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that explanation. Um, if that works for you, that works for you. But there's much, much deeper stuff going on behind the scenes that we can get into. All right. Well, let's dig in. Do you uh, you want to throw something out first, Karen? Well, I kind of had a big, I don't know if this is too vague of a question, but before we got on here, I was looking through notes when I read one of your books, Steve, last year, and you talk about the Trinity of unity, which mm-hmm. I think most people have heard, which I hadn't really heard it characterized as the Trinity of unity, but I think that a lot of people have heard Christ characterized as the way, the truth, and the life. Yes. And so you had it there, and then, so me coming up with a question where you basically you describe the Trinity of unity as it's the undergird and it defines existence. Yes. And so I was I, just thinking, I'm, I'm like, gonna, I don't know if that's too big of a question, but how does it, how does the Trinity of unity undergird and define existence? I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a disclaimer here and that 
Karen has read my books and is a lot more <laughs> familiar with them, some, some aspects of them than I am. Uh, but really, I think that the, the talk really probably goes back. Remember, we were talking about St. Anselm? Yes. And I don't remember if that ended up on the podcast or not. But there's an oddball proof of God. And it basically was, it was by St. Anselm. He was around the 10th, 11th century. And he said, the proof goes, I can think of God, therefore God exists. And that sounds totally ridiculous and preposterous to most people. But logicians have gone over this top to bottom and they said it works. It's, 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 it's a logical way of thinking about these. But I think you have to separate a little. A proof doesn't mean necessarily that you've actually proved something as we, most people think. It's Proof is basically this is, this is a quasi- logical mathematical way that if it worked this is how it would work type thing okay so if you actually read Anselm what he's talking about here is that if you have two things a duality say how do you know which one is better than the other and what it demands is that you actually need a third thing to compare it to so in all of reality, you can say you can have a, you know, two cars that are exactly the same. How would you know one is better? Well, there, somewhere, if you're going to compare them, you're going to have to come up with a third thing, like maybe one has less mileage or one has more mileage. But you first got to set up mileage as a criteria somehow. You, if say, enough, we were talking about Menards. I don't know if many people remember no Menards. It's, it's basically <laughs> like a, a big Home Depot. But imagine you go into the parking lot one day and you, you have a black Ford F-150 and you get there and there's 500 black Ford F-150s. And you come out of Menards and you start thinking, well, which one's mine? Somewhere there has to be a third quality, whether it's a lot of times when we write things, we think who, what, where, why, and how. But in Aristotle, you had things like uh, locality and existence within a time frame or something like that. So Everywhere you need this third quality. And if you take all these qualities, it's not a big deal when you're working on a small everyday level, but when you think of the best of the best of the best, you have to start thinking, well, what if, if the best of the best exists, what's that third thing that it demands that I compare it to? And so Amselm says that third thing has to be God. But as you see this, you already see formulating, and this goes into Gödel and a few other philosophers. I even think Occam's Razor and stuff. When you really start researching what they were saying, and all of these things have been simplified, and you almost have to go back to the original source to re- see what they're saying. But in contrast to the Trinity, if you have a, what's philosophically, it's called a monism. And you think about it, if everything is just one, then how can it be known? And if, it ha- if it's at least a duality, you almost need that third thing to compare it to. And now all of a sudden you're evoking a trinity. So in scholasticism, you think about it, think about the existence of anything. You, you have three truths that have to go with every existence or you wouldn't know that it exists. So envision a ball in your head. The first thing you see is the ball well, does it really exist? Is it in my head or is it real? Another thing is, if, if it exists, then it must be true. It can't be false. But if it's true and it's of God, then it has to be good too. 
Otherwise, it would be some, something else. So anything that, that exists and is bona fide existing and as is, and is a product of creation, you almost have to think of it as a trinity too, a trinity of existence, of truth, and of goodness. And now, why, why does it have to be good, though? I guess that's one thing that I still I've tried to wrap my head around since I've read your work. And that was actually that was my next question that I wrote down there was why does the Christian God? Why can it only be good? It, I mean, it goes into the whole idea of good and evil. If it okay. was evil, then it couldn't be of God. It'd have to be of something else. And what I'd like to do is actually expand on that in another direction as we go through it. So if you can kind of just hold on to that. And what we really should do is go through the history of Judaism and why we ended up where we ended up. Um, I'm going to try to flick through here. I've got some I've got some resources here kind of set up that I can plug into. Um, Hold on. And what I want to do is I want to refer to these things as we go through. Uh, So if you if you go back. I'm, I'm still looking at you, but I've, I'm looking at my stuff on my computer, so I can't see. Um, what happens, there's some, there's some debate. If you remember the Jews were originally in Egypt that way before they became the Jews. And they, they, they faced a dilemma at that time. Uh, when Champollion, and he was, he was sponsored by Napoleon, he went to Egypt and they decided kind of in an ad hoc way that the Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus was Ramses, I believe. Other people have gone in there with other um, research, more recent research, and it's not always held at the greatest, highest esteem. But a lot of people are starting to believe that the real pharaoh at the time of 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 the exodus was a pharaoh named akhenaten or at least if he wasn't the pharaoh that the whole idea of god began with akhenaten because before akhenaten he was he was considered the heretic pharaoh his idea though was that god could only be one you see pictures of him worshiping the sun god or something like that and he didn't really worship the sun but he came up with this, this idea that God, God couldn't be all these many gods that the Egyptians had. He was only Pharaoh. That, that whole tradi- He kind of torqued part the whole system and became Pharaoh. And then when he left, the, the Egyptians went back to their old system. So some would even conjecture that Akhenaten might actually have been Moses. And so what happens is you get this dilemma that you see start surfacing. Uh, there is a psalm, an oddball psalm from Akhenaten, and it's called Akhenaten's Hymn to the Sun. And research, you can look this up on Wikipedia, actually. There's oddball parallels between Akhenaten's Hymn to the Sun and Psalm 104. There's a section in there that C.S. Lewis thought that the psalm actually did come from Akhenaten, which would mean that the, the Jews were at least familiar with Akhenaten and had kind of gotten their idea of the one God from Akhenaten. And they took them after the Exodus, they kind of took that idea and tried to expand it. And now, which this, this is where you become with the dilemmas. How do you expand that? What do you do with evil? Is how do you account is 
evil a created thing or is it a falling away of some sort? So the Jews went and they settled around, you know, in Palestine. Eventually you have the, what's called the Babylonian exile. The Babylonians came down and Judaism became exposed to Zoroastrianism, which does have a good God and an evil God. So now you can see that kind of concept within Judaism. And the way you see that is they start realizing somehow you have an idea of goodness and badness, but it can't possibly be the Zoroastrian way because then you'd have a good God and a bad guy wrestling it out and you would have nothing to define what was right and what was wrong. You would hope that the good God would win, but you wouldn't always know. So what the Jews did is they kind of, and this is why you can explain the Old Testament to some degree when you look at it. A lot of times God is good, but he's also vengeful in the Old Testament. And this is kind of symbolic of the Jews' lack of understanding of what to do with evil. Okay? So now you get to Christianity, and Christianity shows up on the, and, and they have a different outlook on that. And you're always going to end up with this unsolvable dualism if you end up with good and evil, both being of the same power and the same esteem. So what Christians basically started doing is they started realizing that evil was not equivalent to the good, but was an absence of the good. They called it a privation. A privation, yeah. Yes, yes. So, and that's how you end up with this, is that evil in the most philosophical sense is a non-existence. And so what evil, in a sense, we make it exist by giving it a reality it doesn't deserve. And in the Bible, the way this shows up is, is Satan is not an alternate God. He's a fallen angel. Okay. And that's how you get from the evil, evil being something weird that you can't quite account for in, in Egypt through the Babylonians, where it becomes this equal but opposite force. And then you get to the Christianity, and you can see, if you read it closely, you can see that the Bible is constantly kind of um, expanding this kind of thing. When you start looking at Logos, Logos starts, there, there's a kind of a confusion, and this is going to eventually end up in our wrestling with the concept of evil and goodness and, and God and all this, is that you end up with this idea of what what do you do with good and what do you do with evil at that, you know? And so the best way of doing it is just evil now is something not natural, but what you would call preternatural. Hmm. And that if you talk about uh, the occult or something, if you, a lot of times people refer to the occult as preternatural, uh, it, it's something that we, and that's why you end up with man being fallen is because evil is sort of on our behalf. It's not, it's, it's on our account. It's not on God's account. Wasn't well, that where you factor in free will that you right. have to believe that free will is a thing. Exactly too. Right. right. Exactly. Well, and, and that's the whole thing is we, if, if God created us without agency, we would have just been slaves. So we had to, he had to provide yeah, us the ability what, to choose. You wouldn't know what good or you, why would you choose? You, there was nothing to choose over if there wasn't a good choice and right. a bad choice. But then we would just be slaves too. And then there would be no point in creation at that. Right. And you get it. One of the things that you get in the book of John is when you start seeing the idea of logos show up in Christianity. But 
in in Egypt, in in I should say in the Jewish mind, logos starts showing up in the targums, which is the what the the, the rabbis how understood uh, the various lessons in it. And so what happened beginning with Moses uh, meeting God on the mountain, saying asking what his name is, and that that's what the this whole name thing is going to end up being a, a deal. I'm going to make it into a kind of a deal by the time we're done. But the, the name of God originally, as he came, is I am. And if you look at the Greek, it's usually something to the effect of I am the one whose essence is to exist. But the Jews referred to this as the word. Okay. So even though the idea of logos doesn't show up in Christianity until St. John kind of makes a deal out of it what happens is they realize researchers began to realize is as the jews were talking about the word which is why they use sometimes word and sometimes logos in the beginning of john the word was actually the jews version of logos and logos for them was god made made manifest and so as you get along with this dilemma even though all the way back to moses on the mountain god is somehow making himself more real than just some idea of something somewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. So Infinity in the chat says, good is like mountains, evil is like valleys. Valleys don't positively exist. They are just the absence of mountains and lands. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's that's very insightful. Yes. So, I mean, so uh, I, I don't wanna go on to the next thing until we've is that is that a good explanation uh, and you realize I think so. like, like the disclaimer that i had at the beginning you're, there's not there's nobody that's got a perfect knowledge of all this stuff so if you kind of can grasp it i would say you get it so that's about as much <laughs> you know if, it, if there's nobody that's got a perfect knowledge of these kind of things okay okay move on to the next sure i'm fine with that all right so the next thing is why a trinity in, and we've, we've sort of explained it philosophically, but I'm sure there's people out there that will say, well, does, does it, because we were talking about you, you had, you had one viewer that's, that wasn't convinced. And um, if you go back to the beginning of Genesis, and this is going to have a lot to do with the name of God and the name of Jesus and the name of, you know, various different things like that, because you're, you're going to see this flux throughout the history of Judaism a little bit. But in the, the very first things is in the beginning was, was God, right? But if you look at the Jewish version of God, it's, it, the, the word is used is Elohim. And for the, for, the, for the Jewish scholars out there, people know when you have, I believe it's an I am, that means a plurality. So already the very first sentence in the Bible, they're talking of God as a plurality okay i'm just pulling uh, up uh i'm gonna i have a bible up on the shelf but i'm just seeing that go, puts all the original names in place but uh, i don't have it in my 30 some bibles installed here in front of me to show people well and you have to realize that jews technically never pronounce the name of god because it, it, it's what they call the tetragrammaton. Let me see. I got a picture of the tetragrammaton here. Uh, it's just four, it's four mystical somewhat letters. 
Uh, I don't know if you can see that. Yeah. That's, that's a picture off of, I, th I believe it's a stained glass window in an Episcopal church. It was, was actually on Google. But you have the four letters. You see the, the four letters. And they're technically not supposed, they're not pronounceable. They're not something you're supposed to say. So early on, the Jews came up with other names for God to fit different situations. But they're already talking about God as a plurality in some sense. So you, the, the later arguments, you, you're kind of missing something there because it, God from the beginning, very literally from the beginning, was spoken as a plurality. So if I can make it focus there, you can keep talking. I'm just, there it goes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now uh, I'm going to show you another thing. And I know maybe some people don't regard this as right. Not, but the, this is a Russian Orthodox icon. Uh, I'm going to hold it up here. It's Some people should have seen it before. Is that good? Yeah, I've seen mm -hmm. that before. Okay. This, the name of this, it, it's, it's an icon. We don't talk about icons as being painted. They're written. Okay. Uh, this icon was written by Rublev, who is a very highly regarded Russian Orthodox icon writer. Uh, and the name of the icon is the Holy Trinity. Now, you, a lot of people are going to say, well, I'm, I thought that you weren't supposed to paint God the Father, and you're not. So why is Rublev here painting the Trinity? Well, this isn't, this isn't the Trinity that you would normally just fall in, is that this is, these are the three angels that came to see Sarah and Abram and announced to them, this was before Sodom and Gomorrah, that they were worried what was going on and all this, and three angels came to see them. And if you look at the writing in there, it's the same kind of singularity versus Trinity type thing going on. So the Orthodox went back and they were convinced, and I mean, they weren't, they still are convinced, that this is the first exposition of God in the flesh as a Trinity. And so they, even though this is a picture of the three angels that came to see Sarah and Abram, it's, in, it's really mystically uh, a picture of the Holy Trinity. I've okay. never heard that before. Yeah. So it, what, and so what happens now is you, you get to Christianity and you have a, you have this emerging problem. This, I mean, this wasn't something that was solved right away. And a lot of Christians, especially non-denominational Christians, they kind of have this, one of their nasty bits in Christianity they don't like to talk about uh, is the Nicene Creed. But, and the creeds right after the, there's a, the, the ecumenical council of Chalcedon. Uh, and what happens is out of that is every bit of the Nicene Creed is biblical, but it's put together and here's what we know and here's what we're declaring God to be. Here's what we're declaring. Um, the last part was actually written by Basil the Great, St. Basil the Great, and it, it's based around his doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But what it is, the main argument, and this is where you have the, a major rift in Christianity, up until the Nicene Creed, that we, you have to understand that what happened is Rome was being sacked by the hordes coming down from Germany, and they were almost under the point of being destroyed and wiped off the map. Constantine, who was actually born in England, and the real center of the Roman Empire was actually at that point in time in York, England. 
not in Rome. Uh, and so what he did is he realized the church and everything was under embattlement at that time. He came down with, a, with the English army, fought the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, picked up the entire Roman Catholic Church and moved it to Constantinople. Wow. Okay. And, and so there, there's always this debate as which, which church existed first. You don't hear it normally in most, most company, but there's the argument that how did, if the English church hadn't been founded yet, how did Constantine and his mother, why were they Christians? And why did they come down and save the whole thing and move it? So what Constantine did, Constantine was the first real Roman empire emperor. We can get into a little later how, what happened to Pilate after the crucifixion, which kind of supports this. Um, he was the first person to make Christianity uh, okay, really. It was, in, but by the time they had the Council of Nicaea, which is in Nice, uh, Nicaea, they, the Christianity that was actually had the most power was, was called Arianism, after a guy named Arius. And Arius, there, there was a debate over the council if there's a key word in it called substance. And what it meant was it was God of one substance or like substance. And what they really were arguing about was the Trinity. The, the guy who was the good guy was, at a, a, actually he was only a deacon at the time. His name was Athanasius. And later on, we do have a creed about the Trinity I can read later a little bit of call it the Athanasian Creed, which pretty much spells out what the Trinity is. The Arians, on the other hand, were opposed to this kind of stuff, and they were actually the ones in power. And you, I think you got to liken it almost to what's going on now, is that they were the rich noblemen, they were the, rich, the, the, the politicians and stuff. They liked this Arian idea of, one, of a oneness and... Uh, God was more imaginary than real and all. And that was, that was the predominant Christianity. So for them, the, the, one of the stories in the Council of Nicaea is that St. Nicholas actually took uh, Arius and slugged him <laughs> and decked him for, for being an Arian. Uh, but what happened is the Athanasians won the day. Uh, what ultimately happened is to the Arians, if you, it's even in the Quran, is that they became Islam. And so uh, what, after the Nicene Creed, they, they had the Council of Chalcedon, which basically firmed up the doctrine of the Trinity at that time, and basically about around the things that we've been talking about. And so the deniers of the Trinity became Islam. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That at least, the, the, I shouldn't say all the deniers, but the, the, the people at the time that were Christians and became Aryans became Islam, because Islam is... Islam is a, a branch off from Christianity. A sort of inverted, perverted branch. <clears throat> Not only that, but Islam is a, a Gnostic uh, religion as well, and that's found in the Sharia yeah, well, texts. Yeah, and that's what happens is if you look, if you, I mean, I understand the people, it, we've had this discussion kind of off the scenes about the King James Bible and stuff. You got to remember, now I'm, I'm an Episcopalian, I'm Anglican. The, the King James Bible is our Bible. You know, It was a product of the Church of England. The Church of England actually refers it to as the authorized version of the Bible. Um, so most of the people, the defenders, and on the bad side of the Anglican Church is that 
the ones that changed it and kind of pushed it, what we were talking about before the Fabians, that started in the Church of England too. So all of this rub originally started, all this controversy started within the Church of England. Yeah. But the, the, uh, the King James Bible was something, as you, we, you showed it before, the 1611 King James Bible had, it was actually bigger than most King James that you use today because they had all the Apocrypha and everything in it. You can keep He's going to get one. It. Yeah. I mean, so the, the thing is, yeah, I'm trying to. It's pretty hefty here. I have a smaller one, but this is the one that's nice in it. It's, uh, it's an exact copy of the original with the mistakes and the, yeah. the apocryphal text and everything all in here. But I, I've shown this this uh <clears throat> version on the show before boy we're getting some glare there right but uh and the reason i bring this up is nice because one. later on as we go i want to talk about different things that that are biblical but aren't quite understood they're not you have to read between the lines it's not something that's spelled out and this all has to do with the trinity okay any other questions at this point or anything? I've been talking quite a while. <laughs> I'm well, good. Just leave me a spot sometime to uh, bring the trivium into it as well, unless you want to do that. Why don't Why don't you go ahead a little bit, and I'll I'll catch my breath here a little bit. And okay. Give me a chance to to, to set other stuff up here. Uh, well, so and, and you know we should probably have used a, a trivium logo for the show image. But let me see if I can get one up here. See if it's going to pull up. I might have too much stuff running. Here we go. I've got one here, too. I, I've of. got one. So we've got Father Felus the Son and Spiritus Sanctus, or the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's not this. It's not a tie to the Father the Son, necessarily. And it's not this. And it's not this. It's this, this, and this that leads to our understanding of God. Or it is, is not, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. It is God. It is, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And in the trivium, we have, you can't have just grammar or knowledge without you know, you, all you would have is is nouns. You can't have just logic without grammar, or you would have no understanding. You would come; to, everything would be based on false conclusions. You can't have rhetoric without logic and knowledge preceding it in that order, because then you would just be speaking gibberish essentially so well even a even a sentence has to have a subject a predicate and a copula can be doing you have for, for knowledge to work you need those three elements or it just doesn't work watch your p's and q's steve well that's that's the philosophical name <laughs> so sorry i'm just going to put this on the screen here down below us while i'm talking sorry karen you're covered up for a second but um <clears throat> so this the the trivium is really the the holy trinity because the trivium brings you to truth what is truth truth is 
derived from logic. Logic is the art of non-contradictory identification. Logic is where we get the word logos from. And as we see in John 1, etc., the you know, God became or truth became manifest or logos became manifest. And so we can see this direct tie between all of these. And, you know, and then we have this circle of consciousness around it. But there's an interesting passage, and I posted this up on Facebook about two and a half years ago. It's from Ephesians uh, 16, uh, 6.16. Above all, take the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then uh, this is the symbol that was used historically for the Holy Trinity, and it's also the trivium. Does that make yes. sense? Okay. Yes. All right. So if you want to add to that, Steve, with your epistemological knowledge and wisdom... Well, just the and I'm, basically, anytime you have a sentence, you say A is B. You can't if you just have A, if you have nothing to compare. You only, in some degree, you only know something not only by what it is, but why, by what it is not. So right there, you have to say A is or is not B, and then you have to compare it with something, and now you automatically got three. So almost any philosopher going back, Plato, Aristotle. They always considered these things. It wasn't just an, what I'm saying is it wasn't just an oddball Christian thing that they invented. Uh, They saw the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a trinity, but pretty much all philosophies to some degree considered the trinity as a a kind of a epistemological proof of something's existence. It's, it, 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 when they broke things down and you're thinking of things at, you know, at, abstract as the highest thing the highest thing you can think of is like i said it would be goodness and truth and existence so everything to some degree has to reflect those qualities okay so if if we if we're done with that sorry steve i i had my mic muted uh we you and i were talking the other day about carl jung and jonathan in the chat said jung had said that the Holy Spirit visits as light, uses the themes of the times, Matthew 24. And, you know, Jung was a big follower of uh, Swedenborg. He was working with the Tavistock Institute. He was a member of the Society for Psychical Research, which is part of the group that uh, we've been exposing in that article that you expose. The Society for uh, Psychical Research became the Fabian Society, and they were behind the creation of the Codex Sinaiticus and all of the stuff that we've been exposing on the show uh, as of late. And here I'm just going to show the database on screen there. And, of course, people can go to the website and pull up the brain database, and you can uh, search through it on the website directly. But you'll see Carl Jung here, and this is a Fabian uh they create the Fabian Society, and then it goes on into creating the whole uh, revised Bibles that we've been discussing over uh, the last several weeks. 
Jung, Jung was a protege of Freud. Freud, and I've got actually Hebrew books, Jewish books here, showing how um, Freud's philosophy was actually taking the Kabbalah and putting into scientific terms. Jung did the same thing, only he took Hermeticism. The whole idea of the collective unconscious was taking the, the whole, uh, as we you usually call it the primacy of, of thought. Primacy of consciousness, yeah. Of consciousness as being this one oneness, which is really, again, now we're back to the, the, the monism type thing. Uh, the, the collective unconscious is really just a scientific dressed up term for the hermetic occult version of this oneness. So Jung is, Jung considered himself a Christian, but I would, I would, anybody who wants to get into Carl Jung, I would definitely say, point them towards the book, The Aryan Christ by, by Noel, Richard Noel. You might change your mind. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So what I want to, I, I want to have a little preparatory thing here that I've kind of thought of is, uh, so you get a little bit familiar with biblical interpretation. Yesterday, I was listening to Dan Bongino's show, and Dan Bongino was kind of upset because he kind of came to the realization that the Pope might be a socialist, which a lot of figured just out, now just figured that out a long time ago. <laughs> but he, you know, he is worried about it. He's because he considered himself a good Catholic and all this stuff, and he so he brought up the the parable of the rich man, and I want to show you how biblical interpretation can at least be a little bit fuzzy. So if you, if you look, it's in Luke, if you look it up, it, it, it's in a section of the unscrupulous manager. Now, if you remember talking, the passage in Luke off the top of your head, uh, hold on. I can, I can get it very quickly. It would be, we're, we're actually going to Luke 16 all right, I'm going to show that on screen while you're talking. Okay, but what I I'm, I want to skip over more most of that. I do want to make a point though first. Okay. Now imagine you're 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 Christian at this time. You're following Christ, and you can imagine when he's talking about the dishonest manager. Who's he talking about? Any any guesses? I don't know. Who is, who is Christ usually most criticizing? Oh, the Pharisees. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So you, you, if, if, if you just use your common sense, you realize that this whole section is going to probably be a, a, a critique of the Pharisees. But oddly enough, when you get down to the end of the whole thing, there's the, the parable of the rich men and Lazarus. And this sort of puzzled me a while ago. Uh, just out of you know yeah you do sometimes you you read things you thought i'm going to i'm going to check them out well there's a if you look there's a very famous uh, musical piece by ray Vaughan williams called dives and lazarus and in english tradition they all a lot of times rather than use the name the rich man they, they were used the name dives and it's spelled dives we get the word diverse from it uh things like that but you look up, where, where did they get dives from? Well, they got it from the Latin. And the Latin really is, you look at, where does the word dives come from? Well, it actually comes from the word diva. 
Okay. And if you look up, if you look up the English based on the, the Greek at that point, the Greek actually uses the term plusios. So when you look at it, he's criticizing the rich man, but the rich man is a little bit too narrow of a term. You, if you do any amount of research on it, you'll find out, and I've never heard any pastor, any priest talk about it this way, because usually they're so ingrained with the idea that the rich man is the bad guy, because we're sort of, you know, we're, we've got to apologize to the socialists or something like that. But really what he's talking about is he's crit critiquing the Pharisees. The, the Greek word is literally the word for uh, plutocrat. Okay. Okay. The plutocrat is based is what a plutocrat is, is a religious figure or a, a, a politician or somebody who uses his wealth to control the world is in, in basically is unscrupulously using his influence and his wealth to control society. Such as a Bates, uh, uh, Gates or a Soros. Bates. There you go. Gates there or a Soros, yeah. So, I mean, what, and so what you do is you go and you find all these different, you know, priests and pastors and things. They're always making apologies for the rich man, which then, you know, I suppose that's fine too. But the thing is, what he's really talking about here is plutocrats. And he's likening the Pharisees to a plutocrat, which was really a, a god, the god of, I suppose you could call it the god of money. But it's much more than having money. It's the idea of unscrupulously using your money to as bribery or as blackmail and that kind of thing. Okay. Like misusing your power, basically. Right. And one of the, this is kind of seems a little bit irrelevant, but we talked about how do we talk to people who view the Bible differently. Well, I'm trying to show that what I'm about to bring up here and I want to talk about, it's it's in the Bible but it's, it's in between the lines of the Bible. And you have to know the Bible a little bit more intimately because if, if you're going to be just strict and say, that's not in the Bible, well, you're going to miss some of these points, okay? And I think this is probably one of the main points in the Bible that most people don't get. And it very much has to do with the Trinity, okay? Are we, right. are we set and ready to go? Got my seatbelt on. Okay. So now <laughs> you, you, you get to the crucifixion, right? And one of the terms flat out in the back is, if you remember, uh, they're having the trial and the crowd is cheering at Pilate. And he said, they're saying to Pilate, if you, if you, if you let Jesus go, you will no longer be Je or, or fair, or, uh, Caesar's friend. Okay. That's another example of something that sounds kind of innocuous to us until you realize Caesar's friend was actually an honorary title, that you did not have the authority to be a governor unless you were Caesar's friend. And if you did something to uh, jeopardize that, you automatically would lose your ability to rule. And so what happens at this point, the Pharisees are very much blackmailing Pilate into crucifying Jesus. Okay, now I want to I, I want to take that kind of idea where there's something there's what the Bible says, and then there's something in between the lines of what it says. So there's a point in the Bible. If you remember, they're making a they're making a sign to go on top of Jesus head. Right. And if you go into a lot of Lutheran churches, Catholic churches, some Episcopal churches, 
you'll see a, a crucifix at the front of the church, and they will have the initials I-N-R-I. Have you ever seen that? I don't think so. Okay. What it stands, you, you have to I've, I've seen it for sure okay. many times. The letter J did not exist mm. in anybody's alphabet at that point in time. Correct. So it, the replacement for J is the letter I. So it, it literally says the first I stands for Jesus. The, the second letter stands for Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. R stands for Rex. And the, uh, the last I stands for Jewish. Okay. Now, if you remember on that time, they're also writing this out in in different languages, right? If you look at the same Jewish thing, because they said they're going to write this down in, in Hebrew too, in Aramaic. What happens is you have this very oddball thing happening. So they're writing out the, the equivalent of what you saw in the Latin, in Hebrew, in Aramaic. And what you end up, and it was very much, you look at old icons and things like that, they're all, a lot of times they're abbreviating stuff in this very same way. So you look at the cross, and they're literally making a, a thing to put a, a, over Jesus' head, right? What it says is an abbreviation of this very same phrase, Jesus of Nazareth and King of the Jews. Now, the name of Jesus in the Bible is not really the name of Jesus because it's Hebrew and there's no J in the alphabet. So the, the, the Jewish equivalent is Yeshua, right? Correct. Have you heard that one before? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now you have Yeshua, which is... A, the, the abbreviation for that is Yod. Now, and then, what about some people say that Joshua is a more accurate? That's fine. We'll we'll let that be at this point. That's if okay. you want to look at it that way. That's fine. But again, there's no Josh, so it would have to be a Y, right? That's just the way it works out. So if you take Jesus of Nazareth and you convert that into Hebrew, you get Yod. Hey, Vav, and Hey again, which is the Tetragrammaton. Yeah. So the reason the Jews are upset and they're, they're saying, don't write this, write something else, is because they literally were putting above Jesus' head, God. Wow. Okay. Now this gets spookier. Okay. Now, one of the things, if you look, what happened to the Bible is in ancient times, in 270 BC, they, you had 70 scribes take whatever was Jewish at that time and put it into Greek, and that was called a Septuagint. So any Bible, anything that the Christians said that was taken from the Old Testament was would have been converted to Greek, and it... In, in a lot of times when we're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff, we're talking about Genizes and things like that. Whereas Genizes is literally, it's a burial tomb for documents. When you're done using a document and it's old, you, you take it and you put it in the burial tomb and let it, you let it decompose or whatever it's going to do after that. And we got that so, from Judge Lasky, and that was used to influence the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
Right. So what? So by the time you end up in the second and third century, there's literally no more, you know, very little, if there's any Hebrew Bibles around. So the church hired Jews to reconstruct the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, you, what happens is you get into Psalm 90, let me look at this, Psalm 96. And there's old documents on this that, that exist from other, from, I think it's from the Coptic church, that a line, of Psalm, the last line of Psalm 96 was let off. And the reason was it, it became scary for the Jews. Now, I'm going to take you back again before I find you tell you that, but I want you to keep all these episodes in your mind. When, when the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to be with child and says, you will name him. Specifically says, you shall call him Emmanuel because he will be the salvation of the nations. All right. Now, what happens here, and this goes back to this original psalm, there's a line that was cut off by the Jews when they took the psalm. And it's in documents. We know it was there, but it never was put into any Bible. Let all the earth fear before his face. Let it be established and not shaken. Let them rejoice among the nations. The Lord hath reigned from the tree. Now let that sink in a little bit. Read that again, please. Let all the earth fear before his face. Let it be established and not shaken. Let them rejoice among the nations. The Lord hath reigned from the tree. You know, I think in Hebrew, that makes no sense. That Why would the Lord reign from a tree? Is it the Kabbalah tree or? No, this will make perfectly sense, perfect sense. Right. So now you go into the, the angel that announces uh, that she's pregnant says you shall call him Emmanuel, but you go back to Hebrew. The literal name, it, as it evolves in Hebrew, Jesus, the name Jesus as Yeshua in Hebrew has three meanings to it. It's very close to being the tetragrammaton on one hand. And on the other hand, it's very close to the word for the very same word for salvation. By the time you end up in the later, after the Council of Jamnia, and the, the Jews are trying to put the church back together again, but they actually have an 18th benediction, which comes very close to all this, and they're, where they're literally playing, praying for salvation, and they realize that the word for salvation is the same word for God and is the same word for Jesus. And they realize they're praying for Christ and they can't do it. <laughs> so that's why Paul was sent out to persecute the Christians, to find out which Christians weren't saying the benediction the authorized way and to either get rid of them or persecute them. Paul mm-hmm. as Paul, I should say. So right within the name of Jesus, you've got this Trinitarian aspect to it that the very name of Jesus is this, is evokes the image of God and the image of salvation. So in your opinion, does it matter if we say 
Jesus or Yeshua? No, but I do think going back and realizing, I mean, there, there's people, this, this is kind of a secret thing among the Orthodox. Not everybody knows that. So you're, then you count yourselves within the, this sphere because this, this is kind of privileged information a little bit because it's not something the average person is going to read in the Bible, but is there. And so there are people in the past who've heard that and have instantly turned to Christianity at that instant. And when the reason they took the line out of the, the psalm is literally the Lord shall hang from the tree. It literally means salvation shall hang from the tree. Jesus will hang, hang from the tree and God will hang from the tree. That's what I kind of thought is that I was referring to the crucifixion. Yeah. As the tree. That's, That's what I was thinking. Realized when, that, that. when they realized that they took it out. Yeah. Wow. So that's about as profound as I get tonight. So <laughs> <laughs> can I ask a question though? I don't know if this will take us on another track though, but one of your books is called the time of the Christ. Yes. And I've always wondered why was, and I've heard other people too, like different theological books I've read where they referred to him as the Christ. Like, why isn't it just Christ? Is there, does it that was matter? And I had a priest talk me into changing the title. Oh, Okay. So if you want to read it the other way, it's fine too. Okay. I didn't know if that really mattered or not. It matters to some people. It doesn't really matter so much. Some people, they like to say the Christ because it emphasizes he's the one, you know? Yeah. It's not. um, It's showing, is it kind of showing that the prophecy has been made manifest? Well, yeah, I mean, you can download this from the internet. Um, There's a, there's a really good book that it's, that got me to write the book and this goes into Esther and all that other kind of stuff. But when you go back to the original prophecy, nobody had really kind of tried to figure out if the, the idea of the weeks of years, have you ever heard it? that's in the book, the weeks of years and whether it worked out, but it was always Jewish um, legend actually. And I think there's actually people have dated and it's pretty close that the destruction of the first temple was the exact, I think, 72 weeks to the hour that the second temple was destroyed. Uh, but there's always this seven-year thing in there that somehow they realize talks about the, the Christ coming. And the realization in my book was trying to figure out whether Bousway insists that that's one of the, uh, he was a cardinal, but he insists that he, he wrote the book for the Dauphin of France, the, who was going to be Henry the, uh, Louis the Fourteenth, I think, one of them. Anyhow, the, the idea was his catechism. It was the idea that the, one of the primary proofs of God in, in Christ was that this timing worked out to the minute almost. And so my, my goal was to see if there was a scientific basis for that, that you could actually figure that out. And what I realized is that, again, if you go back to the Greek, if you read the King James Bible, they'll often, very early on, they'll use the word in English of sword, that type of thing. But if you go back to the Greek, they're actually using eclipse at all these spots. So if you have have any kind, I used to, I took astronomy. If you have any kind of astronomy program, you can go back and you actually see if these things work. What I found was a very odd conjunction between Jupiter and Venus at about that time. And the next time 
I found that there was this big, huge eclipse about the time of Esther that, you know, the way they, the chronology they used uh, that basically blanked out the whole earth. And you can look that it's on the NASA, uh, what do you call it? The, the NASA chart of eclipses going back to be, you know, thousand years. And you and I, Steve, have discussed on many occasions the book of Esther being uh, the fifth gospel of Christ from the Jewish perspective hidden in the story of Haman. Yeah. And, and, and you've, you've written about that in your book, the 13 coincidences, the exact same time of day, uh, all of this other stuff that... Uh, you and know, I'm, not trying to un yeah, I'm not trying to under uh, undercut the Esther as being somehow reflective of a traditional thing that went on. But for some reason, scholars do know this and they don't like to admit it because of the controversies that it might result in. Right. But, but there is plenty of evidence that for some reason they're documenting the crucifixion as the crucifixion of Haman as they, they've, they've renamed them. And if there's actually, if you can look, you can find uh, sermons and things about this, even in, in Israeli newspapers and stuff, that Haman, for some reason, was equated to Christ. And they have, you know, if you're a Pharisee, you're not going to see him as a good guy. You're going to see him as a bad guy. So they had no problem portraying Christ at that point in time as a bad guy. Um, and that's, they'll say they used that in, in the history as a way of blowing off steam and things like that. But And the oldest copy of Esther actually comes from Josephus, and yeah. uh, it, it appears that he actually wrote it. Yeah, well, some of it goes back to uh, Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees and 4th Maccabees, but uh, all they're doing is referring to stuff, and it, there's no details at all. So some, for some reason, they're resurrecting that, I believe. It, proof of that is... And we've talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's no Esther in the Dead Sea Scrolls whatsoever. There's, there's not even, there's barely an inkling of it. And if there is, it's just, it's a very, very scant reference that seems to be part of the whole thing. But Right. And not, who was the scholar who realized all of this and ran off to, to find a, a, a copy of Esther buried in the desert somewhere of uh, Judea? Well, all of them. <laughs> all yeah. of them. Yeah, because, you know, well, if it's... If, Ernst Renan, I mean, that's what he was going. He, was, he went there, and that's where a lot of this modern-day problem starts solving. That, I mean, that, that's really the problem that you get at the Council of Nicaea that goes into the book of uh, the King James Bible and all that stuff, is that, and you don't, I can't say that there was an evil intention in that, but you got to understand, the only people, and it's, it's what, there's two books, that, and I, any, any proper Baptist would admit that this is right is that there's a guy that they refer to as Dean Burgeon. Well, Dean is a, that's an Episcopal uh, signature. He was Dean of a cathedral. It's not his name. His name was John Burgeon. And there's another one called Frederick Nolan. Was, they're easily some of the, the highest ranking scholars I've ever seen. And they specifically say they had a problem at that time. Uh, Constantine said, you know, start making Bibles. To get, you know, we can't have all these different versions floating around. The only real scholars they had couldn't read Hebrew. And the only place that they could, they could find that probably would have been trained to do that is the, the, the province of Antioch, where Edessa and Nisibis were. And those, that would have been very hard to get. So at that point in time, you got to envision these people like Origen, uh, eventually Chrysostom, 
uh, Eusebius and things. They're not scholars. To, I mean, they're trying to be the best scholars they can, but all they have is Aryan texts. So the Bible that they came that eventually ended up being the Latin Bible was had infiltrations of Arianism in it. And by the time you get to the 20th century or 19th century, really, they're pretty much that's over and done with. And then you have Tischendorf going down and find these Bibles and saying, these are the authentic real Bibles. Well, they're literally, and it was all about Trinitarian. It, you can pretty much any Gnostic heresy you want to bring up is over the Trinity. And that's just a known thing. Denying uh, the Trinity. Denying the Trinity, yes. So what happens... <clears throat> so is, when someone says that the... The Trinity is a Gnostic heresy inserted into Christianity. It's quite the opposite. It's the it'd, it'd be, denial. No scholar would even concede that on any level, even a Gnostic one. So, <laughs> so it's actually the denial of the Trinity is the Gnostic heresy. Yeah, and what happened, there was, see, there was two big Gnostic heresies at the time. One was Marcionism, which basically said there was two gods. Marcion said there was a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. He didn't want anything to do with the Jews. Okay, he so thought they were all evil, and that's kind of what, where Nazism eventually comes from. Uh, and then there was the Valentinians. And so really what Origen was addressing, he, he, he thought the Marcion's knights were reprehensible. So he kind of probably went too far the other way into the Val Valentinian her heresy. And so by the time they get... Uh, trying to write the Latin versions of the Bibles, you've got all these little bits of Arianism sleeping, you know, sneaking into it. The eventually by the Renaissance, you've got Erasmus going saying, you know, we've got to consider the Greek text because they couldn't read Greek. They could barely read, you know, that they, they just couldn't read all this stuff the way it, so you can't, you can blame them, but you can't blame them. So by the time Erasmus goes and consults the Greek text, the Greek text pretty much came from this school of Nicebus, which didn't change. And so that's why the King James Bible is highly regarded is because it came out of that school and didn't have any of the Arian heresy into it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Now, and it, yes. I, I hesitate to, to say these were intentionally evil people or anything like that. Is that, you know, what would you do? You've given this big task to come up with the Bible and you're, you're working under a lot of constraints and, all the Bible, there's, there's 5,000 Bibles out there. You have to come up with some sort of criticism, what they call, you know, biblical criticism to say which is authentic and which isn't. And almost all of them, they're doing remarkable jobs for what they've got to work with. And you're talking about the early 1600s as well. Well, not at, for the Council of Nicaea, you're talking about 325. Oh, yeah, well, there's that. Yeah, I thought you were talking about the King James. Okay. No, the King James Bible, that would have been before, I mean, and while the King James Bible is part of, there's a very good movie on it by, if you remember the Arab guy in the first Indiana Jones movie, he's actually an Anglican uh, from Wales. Uh, John uh, Rice Davies, I think his name is. But he, there's a very good uh, documentary starring him about the King James Bible. The King James Bible, before that, they had, I believe it was the Bishop's Bible, and then they had the, uh, what was it called? It was, it was the Bible that was put together in Amsterdam. It was, it, it's, um, I've lost my mind on it. But they were, they're so radically different. One was very critical. One was very loose. And so you had these two different contingencies that got together. One, 
King James was sort of a saint in his own right in that uh, he had been trained. Geneva Bible, is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah, 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 there you go. Um, King James on his own was, well, he first of all was trained very highly in biblical scholarship by the, the Scottish. But on the side, he started seeing how tough and how unmerciful it was. So he started doing his own Bible studies on the, on the side. So when he got elected, you know, he became king of England. He decided he was going to put these two factions together around something they could both buy into it. And he made each side prove what they were going to say to each other before he signed off on it. And that became the King James Bible. So that was the King James Bible really was the Bible that united England. To, you know, or at least Britain, England to Scotland. And it, it was Interesting. Yeah. It's all, it, 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 the King James Bible is a monument to a lot of different things. It's not, and it's, it's, it's a little bit unfair. It's unfair from the side of the mainline church that they, they bought into this whole Tischendorf thing that they don't use it as much as they should use it. And it's a little bit of the same thing on the other side where you've got a lot of non-denominationalists and Baptists who are convinced this is the Bible. And I, I wouldn't argue with them. It's a very good Bible, but it does have some, like I've just showed, there's, there's things that are a bit missing in it. Uh, it's, it, you know, have a little attitude. Now, uh, you said that you're going to discuss some texts. Are those the texts we already talked about or? Yeah. I, what I wanted to show was that the, the Bible there, there's profound, things within the Bible that you there's a there's a portion I think it's an acts where a guy goes up to Philip and says he's asking to understand the Bible and Philip basically at sound I can't remember it exactly he wants to send him on his way he says but Philip I need somebody to show me if, I, if somebody doesn't show me how to do it how would I know well you've got a lot of people who pick up the Bible and think that they they just know well, it's, people have studied this for a long, long time. They still aren't to the point where they think they know. It's the most complicated and profound book I've ever read. And every time I read it, I still find more in it, you know. I have not found any. The story that I just told you about the name of Jesus, I don't think. I know there's Orthodox that know that. But I don't think outside of Orthodoxy, you're going to find anybody that knows about that. Yeah, I have never heard anything resembling that at all. Yeah, it's pretty convincing. Yeah, it makes sense. Like even you mentioning, like that's like what the little bit that's left out from, like you said, when Saul, when Paul was Saul, and it's like that's how he was able to distinguish basically who he should persecute. Right. It's like wow, that's like an important part of that. You know? Yeah. Well, that's where you get the term shibboleth from. Oh, okay. Shibboleth was, you know, you. I'm sure if I came down to visit you, my Wisconsin accent would would stick out and everybody would go, ha ha, you know, he's from Wisconsin or something like that. But he that's eats cheese. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so the thing is that that's what a shibboleth is. They could go in there and it was the idea that you had a code word in a sense that you could say who was the good guys and who was the bad guys. So they, the Christians mm -hmm. weren't saying the last prayer right because they realized they were talking about salvation in the body of Jesus. And so they, you know, they were kind of not comfortable. And that was enough for Saul to re realize what was going on. Wow. 
And then <clears throat> when Saul became Paul, he must have seen and understood the Trinity himself. Is that? Yeah, and that's Paul. Paul, the, the city Paul was from was actually a huge astronomical city. People don't think of the early, you know, the early church or even before that as being astronomically astute. Uh, and people have kind of a recoiling thing sometimes against the term Catholic. Can't, the term Catholic originally started as an astronomical term. And what it really literally meant is you, they were looking at, you know, using telescopes, you know, they didn't have telescopes at the time, but to the best of their ability, they were looking on the earth and they're looking at planetoids and things. And, and there was a realization that maybe the laws of gravity or whatever, you know, they were pondering at the time, not only functioned on the earth that way, but maybe they functioned out in the universe that way. So you look at the moon, you think, well, you know, maybe the moon is somehow likened to the earth or something. That whole concept was, the idea that truth is universal, that truth is actually whatever, whatever laws of physics apply here apply someplace else and all that, you know, that type of thing. Can't, the term Catholic literally was that astronomical term, that one truth for everybody. Truth is for... Truth, know, is, truth is not subjective. What's true is true. It's universal. It's right, true. Right, right, right. And so you know, I was going to talk about a little bit about Pilate. So what Pilate did after the crucifixion, he actually went to the uh, Rome, uh, the Senate of Rome, and pleaded the case that he was abused and that there's some documents for that, that this, this speech exists. Some people say it's not authentic, but, you know, that, I'm sure it reflects some sort of truth somehow, and if not out authentic. But he went to the Senate of Rome and said, uh, this is what happened. The Christians got a bad shake and all this, and he pled, pled to the senators of Senate of Rome to make... Christianity illegal, uh, legal in the, in the empire. And they decided that they would make Christianity empire, but only a Roman version of it. So in my mind, there you have the birth of the Roman Catholic church, that, that, that was the legal form of Christianity. That, and that's right off from the bat. But at that same time, you had the Christians, you know, you have people thinking that the, the non-denominations think there's another path for Christianity to get around the Council of Nicaea. Well, if there's any path for Christianity to get around the Catholic Church, it would have been the church that went to Nicebus and Edessa, that all the relics of Christianity ended up there. They protected those relics for hundreds and hundreds of years. Eventually, they ended. They were supposed to end up in Saint-Chapelle in Paris. Uh, eventually, the French Revolution got a hold of them and destroyed them all, you know, most of them. Um, but the idea of Catholic originally was the idea that you can't have two truths. Yeah. And there, there's your, the there's your logo. The law of non-contradiction. Yes. It's literally, it's, that, that would be an accurate portrayal of the term Catholic is the law of non-contradiction. Wow. Interesting. No wonder why the... Uh primacy of consciousness folks are so adamant about denying truth exists. I mean, as we've said, it's the greatest sin. It's schizophrenia and all of that. Well, my, pro my problem, to be honest, I, I was a little bit hard coming to it. Um, 
I was researching all this because stuff happened to me in the church and I was angry with the church and stuff. So I, I literally more was just trying to figure out what was what. And so I got these courses and was trained by the Jesuits in this stuff. The, the Jesuits never referred to anything back to scripture. It was just, you know, logo scholasticism philosophy. They would pray, they would do, you know, that type of thing, but they never, they never found the precedent for this stuff in scripture. So I kind of started looking for things like that. If, I didn't want to totally sign on to uh, Logos unless I could find evidence of it in scripture. So that's why I found the tree of Porphyry and realized that was just an elaboration of the tree of Genesis. Uh, that's why I took the term Catholic and realized that was just another term for universal or uh, you know that type of thing, or even the law of non-contradiction. And that's when I became sort of convinced that that's what was underneath all this. If you look hard, you can find the basis of uh, logos within the Bible, you can find the basis of it in Christian tradition, but also in Jewish tradition to some degree. You have Philo, the Philo the Jew, who was very much into logos. Um, a lot of his the stuff, his writings, is elaborating the concept of logos, and he wasn't Christian, but there you have it. Uh, probably one of the greatest scholars of logos ever was Moses Maimonides was not a Christian but he he understood the basis of it interesting he was around the time of Aquinas well are we done <laughs> oh Steve just is froze. Steve frozen I thought he kind of froze for a second what happened to Steve uh oh, there he there, is. There you are. Are, are you done, Steve? You came back. My <laughs> internet resurrected. Was lost for a second. <laughs> I went blank for a second. I don't know what happened. So, uh, do we have anything more to add? I don't. I think that's probably heavy enough for tonight, wasn't it? Yeah, that's pretty good. That seems like a, a good digestible um, uh, amount there. An hour and. Uh, 15 minutes or so any comments that we should address um oh people are uh, a lot of off-topic comments they want to know about stuff from eight ten years ago rather than focusing on the show tonight any questions on tonight's episode folks and uh Anyway, so it, was either, it was either very good or very bad. We, we yeah, apparently, right? <laughs> but you can't have both. It's either, you know, truth or the absence of truth. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good spot to wrap it up. I don't see anybody posting any questions or anything. Maybe they're just pondering it deeply. And uh, it is a little bit mind blowing. So Percival says, amazing. Thank you, Percival. So uh, anyway, we'll wrap it up right there, folks. Uh, sorry Kitchen didn't make the show until the last uh, minute. Uh, you'll have to remember it's 5 o'clock like before. And uh, be a good mod and show up on time. Anyway, uh, have a great night, everybody. Take care and uh, see you next week. I think I have Ingrid McLean coming on next week. 
to discuss her work on uh, the British MK Ultra scene and the the music scene there. And uh, so hopefully uh, I'll, I'll follow up with her this week and get that all solidified. But uh, until next time, see you then. Bye. Bye.